Have you ever asked yourself if terms such as general truth or universal knowledge make any sense? Whose history are we learning at school? And how much of human knowledge are we missing? Why are the voices of a vast part of the world silenced? Or at best, remembered in wars, natural disaster, or in a postcard as an object of exoticism? How does the world look like from the so-called peripheries? Voices from the Peripheries is a podcast about decolonizing knowledge and mind. My name is Emira Ben Ali. I am from Tunisia and I have been working in European universities for the last 10 years. Like many of you, I aspire to contribute to the social justice and equality efforts. In this podcast, I will invite scholars, students and activists worldwide to discuss topics such as cultural dominance, decolonial feminism, food sovereignty, Islamophobia, indigenous knowledge, among other topics. If, like me, you feel angry when you look at your school curriculum, if you believe that we have a lot to learn from minorities and people in the peripheries, then this podcast is for you. So, hey, hello. I'm really super happy to have you today as a guest. Um, thank you so much for accepting my invitation. Of course, very happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So you are a cultural theorist, right? And um, you are also an assistant professor in Leiden University in the Netherlands. That's right. Uh, yeah, so your research is about voice and silence and post-colonial practices. Mm-hmm. Mainly you focus on the Moluccan community. Um, and also you recently, or maybe last year, you published a monograph, Postcolonial Memory in the Netherlands, Meanful Voices, Meanful Silences, yep. Open Access. So mm-hmm. I will put the link for those who want to read the book. Very interesting. I didn't read all the book, but I start mm-hmm. reading it. It's <laughs> already really, quite really, an honor. No, really, 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 really enjoy reading it. Also the way of writing it and, and everything. Thank you. Okay, so um, what do we mean by post-colonial memory? Yes, so in, in one sentence or in one question, the, the, the theme of post-colonial memory basically is the question, how do we as a society, you know, remember the colonial past? Mm-hmm. So in the present day, so how does the colonial past of a particular society enter contemporary public space, for example, whether in the form of discussions or in material shape like statues and street names, or when it comes to um, uh, education curriculum or the way in even even the way in which certain elements of the past have been turned into national holidays, for example, things that we celebrate or, or perform on an annual basis together within a societal context. So how do we remember the colonial past actively in the present? Okay. And how did you, what, what, what brought you to this topic? You know, the, how did you start uh, getting interested in this topic? You know? Yes. I, I mean, it, it's, it's personal, of course, in the first instance, like, um, like it often goes, so it, the, the original uh, interest in, in the po- in post-colonial history just comes from my family history because my, um, the Moroccan community, the, the, the Dutch Moluccan community 
is a group of people that came from newly independent Indonesia in the early 1950s. And my grandmother was among them. So my, my great-grandfather was a soldier for the, for the Dutch colonial army, but he was what they called an ethnic soldier or a native soldier. Those were the problematic terms used for this. Mm -hmm. That person who was a, basically a colonized subject, but fighting for the, the, in this case, the Royal Dutch Colonial Army, the KNIL, as it's called. And um, the problem was with this, this war, in the in Indonesian independence war, late 1940s, that uh, obviously the colonial army was fighting to maintain the colony. And uh, many Moluccan soldiers were fighting in that army. So basically they were, Part of what is now an Indonesian province in the east of Indonesia, Maluku, but they were fighting against independence. That's at least one perspective you can take. So you can imagine how that placed them into a really awkward spot after mm -hmm. the independence of Indonesia. And of course, there's many you know, reasons why they did it that way. Part of which was just basic divide and conquer. So the Dutch for centuries had been grooming the Moluccan people basically as their allies. You know, they uh, were privileged in status above the rest of the uh, Dutch East Indies. Mm -hmm. They were taught the Dutch language, whereas that was not per se the case for the rest of the, the colony, the, you know, the Dutch East Indies as a full colony. Um, they were Christianized, whereas much of the rest of Indonesia was Muslim. Mm -hmm. But also they were just socioeconomically privileged uh, uh, because they were given jobs often in the colonial administration you know, like clerks, uh, or they were indeed offered, um, or they were recruited for the colonial army. And um, the Dutch entered the Moluccan province, what is now the Moluccan province, already in the 1600s. And then much of the rest of the Dutch East Indies was only conquered in the 1800s. So it's 200 years more. So for all of these reasons, the Moluccans were, it's not as if the, the independence war started and the Moluccans at that point decided to recruit for the enemy. They were already in the army, you know, and the army's purpose was to, um, to um, defend uh, the Dutch cause. Uh, also, a portion of the community or, or like of the soldiers were, of course, hoping that uh, the Dutch would eventually help them establish an independent country of Maluku. So they also, there was also a separatist cause. They didn't want to choose between Dutch colonialism and Indonesia. Indonesian independence, which from their perspective was neo-colonialism. They, well. yeah. Yeah, they were the third position in yeah. Moluccan independence. Mm -hmm. Anyways, that, that didn't work out. And then the Moluccan soldiers were really in an awkward spot in the... You can also trace back even the moment where it was silenced because, um, you know, my, from, from Dutch side, you know, I'm from a mixed background, right? Moluccan and, uh, and Dutch. So from the Dutch side of the family, my um, grandmother also other people's grandmothers, they would still remember all the most important islands of Indonesia and their most important products of trade. So they would, in their high school time, back in the, you know, uh, before the Second World War, in their school time, they would uh, learn about uh, the Dutch East Indies. So they would learn about their colonial empire because it was still a matter of pride. And then after independence, these parts of history education were just literally erased from the history books. Books were rewritten. Second World War became a major story in the history books for the newer generations of Dutch people and nothing anymore about um, colonial history. And that went on for a few decades. And like I said, nowadays it is changing because, um, you know, the story of uh, slavery 
and also the Dutch role in slavery that was also very much marginalized in the history books for the for for, for many decades or mm-hmm. or forever. And it's only now, as we we met in the Kekikoti months, after all, with the celebration of the abolition of slavery. That's pretty new that that's getting this much attention and this much space in Dutch society. And there's even talk of turning Kekikoti into a national holiday so that the entire country once a year celebrates uh, the abolition of slavery, which I think is an amazing idea because even I don't even see why, I don't even can not come up with any argument against it. Why would a country that used to do slavery not celebrate the fact that they don't do it anymore? You know, that is a, also one because national holidays are about building collective identity. And I would imagine that a post-colonial country like the Netherlands would want to emphasize the fact that they stopped doing some of the gruesome things that they, that they were doing in the past. So, and I'm not the only one who feels this way. So it might become a national holiday eventually. And those are hopeful steps. Yeah. So you feel also that now, I think with, I forget her name, Jennifer. Yeah. She, Jennifer, the... Yeah. The, Jennifer like, she was also talking about this last 10 years as, you know, a period where social movement and activists are also more visible or they, like you, you start gathering the fruits of maybe years of activism and work to, to make those voices uh, more visible or at least to have a discussion on the table, you know, claiming uh, a new history or a new uh, narrative about the, the history of the Netherlands. Yeah. And that is also, it's also really true because you can even see it. When I uh, I finished my master's in 2012, and then I tried to get funding for my PhD for quite a few years. And it was something, something post-colonial. And it wasn't really a big topic then, you know? Despite the fact that, for instance, one of my case studies is the Jan Peterson Kuhn statue the statue of the colonial um, uh, oppressor, let's say, in Horen, his birth, city of birth in the north of the, the, the Netherlands. And the, the, the whole chapter that I wrote about it is about the statue falling over because of an accident. You know, there was actually an accident in a train truck toppled the, the statue. And then there was quite a lot of conversation and discussion in, in society at the time. Should the statue go back? And there were many people saying, no, it's a colonial oppressor. Now that the statue has fallen anyways, maybe we should relocate it to a museum. That's around the time when I finished my master's and I started trying to get funding for the PhD. But it was still, it felt at this time like a niche topic. Of course, it comes and goes, right? Uh, when, when certain topics are suddenly popular. And of course, post-colonial theory has be, been very popular in the 80s and 90s, for example. But at this yeah. particular time, it somehow wasn't, at least not in the Netherlands. Post-colonial studies was always nostalgic, I had the feeling, in the Netherlands. So it was about remembering or dealing with the loss of the empire, reading a lot of colonial literature, thinking about more optimistic or almost naive concepts like, you know, a mixing interculturality, you know, mm-hmm. when colonizer and colonized learned from each other and both uh, come out of the, the relationship changed. It's all valid in its own way, but there was none of the more activist kind of angry, we want to change something about current day society feeling to it that we do have nowadays mm. only in 10 years everything has changed because when i started the phd proper finally in 2016 and ironically i could only get funding for it in germany not in the netherlands <laughs> so i did my phd in germany where there was actually a big memory study center in gießen 
where I did my uh, PhD. And of course, that makes sense because Germany deals with collective memory all the time. And it's been a really important part of their identity to come to terms with their perpetrator identity in the Second World War. And then the question of how does society move on from something like this in all the decades to come into the future. So it makes sense that there is a memory studies center, not just one, but many in German universities. Mm. And there somehow it was really easy for me to explain why it is an important topic for a post-colonial society like the Netherlands to learn how to deal with its post-colonial memory, you know, how to give it a space in the current era. And that was 2016. So it took you four years to find a position and not in the Netherlands? That's or... right. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. Four years. I was, you know, I was also working on and off as a teacher, of course, uh, just uh, hmm. at bachelor programs full time. Hmm. But yeah, for each of these four years, I send out at least one or two uh, proposals each year to different universities in the Netherlands. And then I finally send one to Germany. And then to, and I got it immediately. And then I did my work uh, for four years. And then in 2020, I finished the PhD. And that was uh, when the murder of George Floyd happened and Black Lives Matter had an upsurge everywhere. And um, they toppled the Edward Colston statue in Bristol of the colonizer, slave trader slash philanthropist who um, gave a lot of money to, to uh, hospitals in Bristol, but then he made the money via the slave trade. So one of those mm -hmm. contested figures and, and BLM activists just toppled the statue. And then there were new protests all around the statue in the Netherlands as well, inspired by this, of course. And then right throughout, the, you know, the, the, there was the roads must fall movement in the meantime, a few years earlier. So the, and then many Confederate statues in the United States were also toppled or removed. So suddenly in the second half of the 2010s, everything started moving. And now we, we are already halfway to the, the first half of the, the 2020s. And you do see the difference, even in the Netherlands. Teams mm. are interested in this. Cultural heritage uh, is becoming a buzzword where, you know, it doesn't only mean nostalgia or beautiful memories anymore, but it actually usually refers to contested histories. Statues are not a common sense thing anymore where everyone says, yes, of course, there are a few voices that disagree with it, but generally everyone agrees that these statues are great. It's not like that anymore. Mm. But I feel like um, all over the world, there is um, this kind of, um, I mean, I see it also in the Arab country, I mean, in Tunisia, or um, of course it happened after the revolution, but I feel like also the new generation are more and more aware this kind of so we i mean even for us not only the colonizer but uh, many of those um, part of the history that were celebrated before like my parents would talk about things in a you know in habib Bourguiba in a very uh, positive you know narration now i think the new generation are more like uh, critical to some of those things um, yeah. and there is this kind of uh, It's like rediscovering independence or reclaiming a true independence and uh, liberation, you know, uh, from from uh, colonizer, from uh, for us uh, as a post-colonial also country. We, I mean, our uh, education system is copy paste from from uh, from France. Uh, we study yeah. French, uh, you know, uh, in the primary school, so we speak Arabic, obviously, but. Uh, we, we learn Arabic as well, but at university we are taught only in in, in French, apart from some uh, some field. Uh, also, the way uh, 
I mean the 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 scholars, the what we are learning, how we are learning all this is very much uh, from from the French uh, French system. And I think we do like the new generation, for instance, kind of starting giving cutting with the French language using more English you know, to open up to the world and also using more Tunisian, for instance. So, of course, it has, um, but I feel, I feel, and also we see all this uh, Nigeria and all those places where actually people are like fed up mm. uh, with, you know, a story that is repeating itself that they cannot, you know, believe anymore and they're raising, uh, raising voices. So I think, as you said, what happened in the U.S. is affecting, you know, what is happening in the Netherlands and there is a kind of general movement of we need to stop this but of course it takes time and it takes a lot of efforts and sometimes the risk is that um these voices get um how to say um uh co-opted as well and also transformed into something else like a business or you know yeah it's of course always the risk but um at least things are moving right exactly yeah and it, it's a and of course, there's always uh, transnational movements and also global movements going on that, that form paradigms in which certain forms of activism make sense. For instance, mm -hmm. the 70s was very much a time of far left mm. radical activism, where in the Moroccan hijackings, for instance, in the Netherlands were inspired by the Irish Republican army going mm. on and uh, um, Brigata Rosso in Italy, and of course the Black Panthers in the United States. And you name that was the, the cultural climate in the world, the political climate in the world in the seventies. And now I think if you want to give it a title or a name, the current era is a decolonizing uh, uh, era and the decoloniality era, which means that people are not only scholars anymore, but people generally are realizing that what we have to decolonize is actually knowledge production. Mm. So we think we know, where did we learn it? And then topics like why are we still, you know, all speaking French in, in, uh, in uh, universities in Tunisia, for example. Those questions are becoming more common questions to ask, not only in the universities, but also, for instance, in the, in the national media and also in uh, public debates that are hosted in museums, for instance, decolonizing museums, decolonizing the government, decolonizing academia. And, and this is, I think, what we are currently seeing. And that's, to me, hopeful. Yeah. Um, so one of your uh, chapter, you're talking about this group of activists that uh, trying to uh, disrupt this uh, glorification of the golden age. And, uh, and they, as you explain in the chapter, they were using both a kind of, uh, they voicing, of course, uh, they had actions uh, to yes. stop this, uh, but at the same time, they were refusing to talk to the media, right? Could yes. you yeah, could you tell us more <laughs> about this <laughs> no, case? Have, yes, absolutely. Uh, they I, them I find very interesting. And um, I'm also planning to to reach out to them for my follow-up research, the current uh, postdoc that I'm, that I'm doing, that is called uh, Listening to Silence. Mm. So, but that's a um, different topic. We can maybe talk about it later. But for, for the book that I finished, uh, chapter four, is about this activist group. And, you know, because the, my book is called Meaningful Voices, Meaningful Silences, right? The, the undertitle. So there is a whole tendency in my work to kind of not only look at activist voices, but also look at activist silences. Mm. And I think that is important because like you just said before, it's in a way good news that everyone is now talking about decolonizing everything, 
but there's also a risk. And the risk is that if too many people start talking at the same time, we get just a cacophony of noise of people screaming at the same time. We get kind of like a competition of the loudest voice. You know, we get certain people who don't have the loudest voice, metaphorically speaking, right? It's not really about screaming always, but it's also about finding the right platform or having the right rhetoric or discourse to make yourself be understood in the public discourses. For the ones who are already marginalized, there is the risk that because they don't know how to formulate it so that they get public attention, they are marginalized even further. So yes. a voice as a main instrument for empowerment comes with its limitations. That's one of the premises of my, of my work, not just the previous book, but my work in general. I'm all for, for voice and speaking out and speaking up. But if you, if you draw, if you kind of take this to its logical endpoint, everyone is screaming at the same time. Um, hence my interest in certain forms of uh, silence and then not the obvious silence that we conceptualize as the opposite of voice, so voice speaking up is good, silence is bad. Hence the slogan, silence is violence, silence is compliance. And again, don't get me wrong, I see all these, you know, I agree with those slogans too. And I understand that many forms of silence are actually the result of silencing and therefore they are for sure a form of violence. And it is it can be extremely empowering to be able to speak up as a previously marginalized or silenced community. So I agree with all of those things. I'm just looking for, I'm not trying to turn it on its head, but I'm just looking for a nuance where one silence is not the same as the other silence. Some silences can be the result of violence. Other silences can be on purpose. Some forms of silence can be used as protection. Um, some silences can communicate dignity or respect. Yes. And this is the kind of silence, and we see it all around us. It is nothing groundbreaking that I'm you know, stating here. Most prayer happens in silence. Meditation happens in silence. One option for um, taking a break from your work is doing a silent retreat. People are looking for silence and that makes sense because we're living in an oversaturated society full of voices, especially in social media. Like you're supposed to constantly share everything uh, uh, that you feel about something. And when you are a person with some public uh, uh, status and there is a tragedy happening and you didn't say anything on social media, your silence is already immediately making you compliant. So there's a big effort there's a big concentration on, on voices and silences can be a kind of relief and we're taking them constantly. And there's also more obvious examples like the entire Dutch state takes two minutes of silence on the 4th of May to mourn and remember the victims of the Second World War. Mm. That's many, many countries have these kinds of rituals. So this is the kind of silence that I'm trying to find yeah. and locate and and bring back into the, the discourse of activism because activism has a tendency to focus on screaming and, and, and uh, raising your voices. So what I'm interested in is where are the activist silences that are empowering. So not the activist silences that are disempowered, but the other ones, the ones that actually help and are somehow a, an alternative form of expression that may sometimes be stronger than voices. Yeah, it reminds me a movie. Um, I also use silence as a form of infrapolitic, so a form of resistance, especially in uh, women, um, mm -hmm. resistance against uh, patriarchy. Mm -hmm. Actually, I think one of the movies that inspired me that I watched maybe 10 years ago is a 
Algerian movie called uh, La Source des Femmes, The Women's Source. And it talks about uh, this uh, women in a village. So uh, they they were the responsible of uh, bringing, uh, you know, water from a uh, source, you know, and walk mm -hmm. and, you know, all this, this work that women do. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think one of them, uh, she fell and she lost her baby. So the women were gathering and they were actually talking about those conditions and why uh, their men are in the cafe and, uh, you know, doing nothing. Because, of yeah. course, those men were farmers or so they have seasonal work. But uh, the everyday cores were the charge of the women. So they have to walk kilometers, bring the water and do all the stuff while their men will be in the cafe talking and playing cards. And uh, so they were very angry. Um, um, and they decided to to do something. So uh, the oldest woman told them, well, you have to stop sleeping with your men. Mm -hmm. This way you will punish them. And this should be uh, a common thing. So all of you. So we need to do this. And you don't have to talk to them. So you don't have to explain to them, you know. Um, and then through the movie, you know, kind of uh, uh, show how... Uh, by this act of, you know, they didn't say anything, they didn't complain, they didn't shout, they didn't, you know, which is usually the way they would be kind of uh, complaining about stuff. So they just yeah. decided all of them to stop, uh, you know, being with their men without saying any word, and it works. So, um, and that was really powerful. Also, uh, I think it was really powerful and showing uh, those form of resistance that we don't call usually resistant, we don't see as, uh, you know, powerful, because as you see, as you said, I mean, we always talk about voices, which is always about you have to claim your right, you have to shout it, you have to fight, you know, you have, you have, you have, otherwise you are passive. Uh, and usually we depict the, the the powerless or the subordinate or the marginalized or, you know, as as a passive victim, they, they don't talk. And the 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 act that symbolizes their liberation is their voice is when they talk yes as you also mentioned in that like spivak exactly and the talk so um yeah, yeah. And, and and what i really like in your work is like you unpack the silence the concept of silence so you just uh, move from something that um, could be blurry or could be understood as uh, okay passivity or at best as infrapolitic to something that is more nuanced and then you actually present the different way we can conceptualize or we can understand silence also by opposition to, to voices, right? Yes, no, exactly. And I think that's a great example that you gave from the from the movie. And I would, uh, please send me the, the link afterwards. I would I wanna, would like to, to, to check it out. And it is exactly this kind of silence. It's one of the forms of silence that I'm really interested in. Because indeed, why does it work? Uh, you know, um, they don't explain themselves, the women. You know, it's a form of silent protest that is constantly happening that kind of begs an explanation. So the men are thinking, why? Why? You know, and they will not explain it. And even pro if I understand it correctly, the silence can be so complete that it even kind of becomes difficult for the men probably to even address it. And they start doubting themselves, thinking maybe we are crazy or maybe we are over, you know, like um, maybe it's us somehow. Yeah, and that's a form of silent treatment, of course, which is very common in fights as well. Like it, it's one, one very powerful way of resistance, especially for the person in the fight who would usually 
whose words would not be taken seriously. In this example, between men and women, for example, especially if there's also cultural reinforcements in which that is anchored. In that case, your silence is stronger than your voice because your voice is usually already pre-interpreted as a lesser, you know, and that's also often um, silent protests uh, um, coming from, from uh, uh, women's movements have to do with the fact that if they would start raising their voices, it would just easily be interpreted as hysterical to give it a cliche term. Yes. And the same is true for post-colonial subjects. If, if they would become too angry and loud in their protests, the newspapers, you can imagine what would happen. It has happened many times. They would say, oh, the, the, the angry, uneducated, primitive, you know. And so voices are often immediately uh, provided with uh, interpretation, which also proves that the almost simple democratic ideal of raising your voice means that you are, you know, you step into a civil society. That's not true. There is a pre-existing power uh, inequality that will decide for you whether your voice is taken at face value or not. It doesn't matter what you say. The first step is whether there is a listening audience for it. And if there isn't, it doesn't matter how well you explain yourself, you know. Uh, in first instance, eventually that can change. But what has to change first is the paradigm, not what how you speak, you know. It's yes. not really a chicken and egg question to me. Like in the, in the end, it's, it's often it has to do with numbers and it has to do with the, if more and more people, if only one person says this statue is racist, nobody cares. It doesn't matter how eloquent they explain themselves, whether they write a full paper about it or whether they just have a few good slogans that might work. There's no audience for it. Only if 20 people, 30 people over a period of a full year, maybe start, start repeating it, then people start listening to the voice. And at that point, when there is already an audience, does it become important how you phrase it? Mm. the audience comes first and if there is no audience silence is a really good way to demand an audience because a silence is a disruptive force in a in any society that is based on voices and talking and politics mm -hmm. is based on talking mm. not on being silent together many elements of religion are, are, are based on being silent together Basic love is often based on being able to be silent together. You're only in a good relationship if you can also be quiet together without feeling awkward, etc. But polit political society, you know, is based on explain yourself, state your, you know, negotiate what, what do we need, uh, find consensus. And if a person refuses to partake in it, it's a disruptive element and it begs an explanation. Hence why the silent treatment also works on societal level. Mm, people start doing well. something. Yeah, and then it shifts the power. Yeah. And it shifts, yes, because then the, the talking party constantly says, explain yourself. Why are you doing this? What if, you know, is it something that I did? But what can I change? What is the problem? Are you angry? Are you sad? You know, mm. what's the deal? And and uh, to put it all simplistically, but to, to bring it back to the case study that you that you yeah. Uh, because that's that's the, the main example in my book of, about this form of, of uh, activism, where the silence plays a major role, but it is not only silent protest, because you also have silent protest of the, the, the Gandhi kind of uh, uh, type that everybody knows from history. It's not that what the Graue Eodis activist group does or did a few years ago. It is a kind of silence that is allied to a kind of voice. So concretely, the group called, are called the Graue Eeuw, that rhymes with the Gouden Eeuw, which in Dutch means the Golden Age, that's the problematic term the Netherlands uh, gives to its uh, 17th century, an era of slavery and exploitation and oppression, but for the Dutch also an era of becoming really rich and uh, internationally dominant in the trade, the spice monopoly and everything. 
And the grauwe eeuw means the desperate or the like the despairing or the gray age. So something negative and it rhymes. So this group How do you pronounce it? The grauwe eeuw. The gray or horrible, dreary age. In Arabic it means shit. Sorry. Surprisingly close to what they mean. <laughs> I just like how uh... <laughs> a nice coincidence, but may maybe a meaningful one. <laughs> so see that they were famous in, or infamous in 2016-2017 for spray painting slogans on colonial symbols in society. So the statue of Jan Pietersen Koen in Horn. They wrote genocide on it. Why? Because Jan Pietersen Koen, why does he have a statue, first of all? Because he started the spice monopoly that mm. kick-started the golden age in 17th century. So he went to the Banda Islands in Maluku, in the Moluccan province, and um, he took over the plantations, uh, and then the Dutch monopolized them, and then um, they, lots of money came in. That's the simple story. And then we can see, wow, how great of him, the Netherlands is uh, owing much of its current welfare to Jan Pietersen Koen, hence he has a big statue in his birthplace. But how did he get the spice monopoly? He committed a genocide. Mm. He killed, he went to the Banda Islands with a group of soldiers and he, there were 15,000 people there on the pre-existing plantations that were already there, spice plantations, and he killed 14,000 out of the 15,000 in a matter of weeks, two weeks. And then he enslaved the um, remaining thousands, Bandanese people, and they shipped them to elsewhere in the Dutch colonial empire. And then he repopulated the now vacant islands, basically, with um, enslaved people from elsewhere in the colonial empire. And then they put them to work in the plantations. And of course, there was also, by the way, an ecocide going on. He also burned down most of the plantations to create scarcity. And then the remaining plantations, new enslaved people from elsewhere, were uh, put to work there and uh, then controlled by the Dutch. And this is how the spice monopoly um, was uh, established. And again, for people who understand a little bit how the world works, this is actually not surprising because how else would it have been? It would be really naive to think that he would come there and negotiate with people and then eventually come to a deal where they would give away all their power to the Netherlands, it makes no sense. 1621, of course, it was a violent uh, uh, action, but that is a part of history that is really marginalized and kind of uh, placed, you know, um, between brackets or euphemized by giving the man a statue saying this national hero made us rich. So the Grauwe Eeuw, the activist group, their purpose is basically just by, by you know, um, amplifying these tensions. And then they write genocide on him. And then as a passerby, you're looking at the statue, but you cannot think anymore, oh, what a nice statue, because now it says the word genocide, and that is a horrible word, and it is very disruptive, and you think of mass killing people, which is also the history, actually. So this is what they do. Uh, also, many other monuments ac uh, across the Netherlands uh, and similar things. And Who are they? Mm -hmm. Who are they? They are um, they're Dutch. They are... Uh... They're, I mean, they're... they're... Yeah. They're mostly anonymous. Mm -hmm. the, the main leader is uh, Dutch Indi with Indonesian uh, background as well. Similar to me, not Moluccan, but actually uh, his grandfather was also a soldier in the Dutch colonial army, like my great grandfather. So similar, similar history. And like they're mostly anonymous. 
but from the few that I've heard of, um, many of them have a post-colonial background, like like my own. Probably mm -hmm. not entirely a migrant background, but let's say second, third generation. Um, and that makes sense because it's this kind of uh, uh, activism often comes from the felt cognitive dissonance, just the discrepancy between what the state says your history is like and what you feel your history is like. So in any case, writing the word genocide on a statue for everyone to see, that is using your voice, you know? That is not silence, that's speaking up pretty clearly. So that's the voice part. But now the silence part is that, of course, in 2016, 17, all the newspapers, all the national newspapers wanted to interview them because they were um, raising uh, uh, you know, heads. Uh, it was very clear what they were doing. It was happening everywhere. And they were very outspoken on social media too. They had their Facebook and Twitter pages and they were constantly explaining long monologues, you know, what they were doing and why. Then the newspapers reached out and they said, well, do you want to do an interview with us and explain um, the reasons for your activism? And then surprisingly, they always said, no, we will not be interviewed by um, any representatives, you know, of the Dutch national discourse. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And that in itself, that rejection that they kept giving, the systematic rejection of, of um, becoming uh, introduced into the national discourse is already a form of voice and silence together that is interesting to study because they did respond. They were not given complete radio silence where they would never respond to Dutch newspapers. No, they would give them a quote, you know, but the quote would be a quote of rejection. So they would say, no, thank you, Volkskrant or NRC, whatever national newspaper. We will not be interviewed by you because we think that the history that we are protesting against, you know, it's already clear by now. You can do your own research and understand why we are writing genocide on the statue. It's in the archives. You don't need us to explain to you what's wrong with the statue. And what's so the position? Wow. Yes. And, and it's interesting, right, because it's not full silence. It is one sentence that closes the door for further communication. And that is to me exactly the kind of silence that I'm interested in because it is a, it's almost like a dance between voice and silence. They use silence in such a way that they have control over their own narrative. And the only thing the newspapers can do is quote their rejection and then say something about that themselves. And it's also interesting because I, um... So when you talk, I think about uh, infrapolitics and uh, infrapolitics as um, yeah, as the, the, the weapon of the weak, as Scott would say. But at mm -hmm. the same time, I don't see weak here or I don't feel weak. We, this group of activists, they're really strong because they, in a way, they really shifted the power dynamic and they are the one imposing their own rules. So they decide when to talk, where to talk, how to talk, with whom to talk. Yes. Exactly right. And that is indeed very good. That is one of those um, misconceptions, common misconceptions about silence is that it is a form of weakness. Even mm -hmm. silent resistance is a form of weakness in this common understanding of it. Because, you know, what it often means is that person who doesn't have a voice, uh, which would be the best thing, still finds a way to protest by using silence. So turning their infliction, basically, their disease, silence, their silence, to turn that into a weapon, so that's, you know, it's a form of empowerment, but it's a kind of desperate kind of empowerment. Like the last, the last means left to survive basically is turned into something that might eventually get you somewhere. But I disagree with that. Not always, again, there's always, you know, in many case studies, this is also true, but um, not all the time. And especially not in the types of case studies that 
them interested in, because there's also the other side of chosen silence that is very powerful. For instance, people who are already in power can choose to be silent all the time. And it is never seen as weakness. For instance, when a government refuses to apologize for a certain element of history, that's a silence. There's no weakness in that. I mean, we could say, actually, yeah, it proves how weak they are, but that would be you and me discussing it in, from the margins, you know? No other state in a diplomatic situation would think, oh, you know, they're re retracting their voice from this discussion because they're weak. You know, mm -hmm. they probably have their reasons. So when a government cho chooses to have selective silence, it's somehow actually a symbol of their authority. Just like when you have a meeting with uh, uh, colleagues and uh, the professors and the most important ones, you know, they're suddenly not there. And everyone talks about, oh, I wonder why they didn't come to the meeting. Maybe something is wrong. They have the power to just disappear temporarily, to not reply to the email or to not uh, have their voice uh, uh, in, in, the, in the meeting. And there is no weakness in it. It actually proves their power. Yeah, it's like erasing you, like you're not acknowledging you at all. It's yeah, like exactly. They have the, existed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. The power to ignore yeah. the, 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 their, their subjects. And that's, you know, when you talk to any director of, uh, uh, of the inclusivity and diversity boards of universities, this is exactly the type of silence that they are dealing with when uh, um, um, the, the president of a university refuses to go into conversation with them, you know. It's not because the university board is weak. No, it is because they feel that they are more important and they have no time to discuss things like inclusivity and diversity. So that's a form of silence that is used as a weapon. Mm -hmm. And therefore, if that's such a common one, there's no, it makes actually no sense to not see it the other way around because exactly that's exactly the kind of silence that the, the this activist group, the Graue Eeuw, uses. They think, we don't need to explain this to you. You can look it up yourself. You know, there's no weakness in that, like you said. Mm. But then, yet their voices are anonymous. So when they actually do, uh, they do act. They, the action they do on the on the statuette, and they do it in without revealing themselves, right? Originally. Originally, okay. And that's also one of the things that eventually I'm uh, for the Veni research in my postdoc. I will also reach out to them. You know, maybe they will be quiet to me as well, but you never know. We'll see. They maybe want to talk with me, because to me, I was I was following them for a while, and because they started when I started my PhD, that was a nice coincidence, 2016. And they were first properly anonymous, and then it helped the kind of anxiety that Dutch society felt about them because no one knew who they were. They were always speaking on their own platforms, their own social media pages, and they had a website, have a website, a blog, blog post, blogspot website. And then no one knew who they were and they didn't want to talk to any newspaper or whatever. They didn't want to come on TV or do any of the, the stuff. And that was very nervous, nerve wracking for the for Dutch society. But then at some point, one of the guys, the leader, and now he's also suddenly the leader of the Graue Eeuw, uh, but I don't think he would call himself that. He's just now being framed as such. One person decided to come out of anonymity and do interviews here and there. Mm. And then he still was very careful. He didn't do interviews with national newspapers. He just did an interview with uh, what, what this YouTube channel is now defunct, but it was called uh, Hollandistan. And it was uh, run by Dutch Muslims um, and it was also a similar, uh, um, it was a platform to kind of uh, criticize and critically analyze 
the position of uh, Muslims in the Netherlands and how mm. they are marginalized, etc. So for platforms like this, the guy, his name is Michael, the, the guy from Grauweel, he decided to do interviews with, with, with them and other such like platforms. But then, of course, his face became known, his name became known. And that's the thing. And it also proves a different dimension of silence, namely silence as protection. The moment he gave his silence up, uh, he lost a certain element that was protecting him before, you know, because now he could become the object of ridicule, mm. right-wing uh, websites were making fun That's of him, well. attacking yeah. him, sending mm. threats to his address. Mm. Suddenly he was, you know, um, yeah, he was in the news a lot that negatively people were questioning his mental stability. Uh, mm. It was really horrible. Exposing him, yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, well, I uh, speaking out. Yeah, it becomes a form of exposure, also exposure to possible violence and judgment. And then, in a way, the cause could be weakened because uh, I mean, we know people like just stories, like you know, small stories about people, and then they usually get lost in the or lose the main cause, right? I mean, it's yeah. easy in public opinion. That's why I mean, I guess the media insisted to hear them because then. It shifted the, the the attention from the 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 aim, and that's why I think exactly. silence was very powerful. From the very hardcore of the cause to uh, people behind it, and then it becomes the stories what they are doing, and you know, their exactly. everyday life if they are sick or good or bad or whatever, instead of really yeah. focusing on the on the purpose, right? Yes, exactly right. So, mm -hmm. and that that is again also a weakness of voice because a voice is connected to a person, whereas a silence. You know, or it is connected to a people, but then every people has a few persons who are representing the people. So it eventually always can be, you can always single out certain individuals and then start studying them and exposing them for their hypocrisy and seeing like, see, he also uh, uh, made some uh, complicated comments on social media 10 years ago. And then it really becomes possible to scrutinize a person into oblivion. Whereas if the people remain anonymous, the cause remains on the, on the forefront, like you said. And this is uh, another strength of silence, because whereas voice can be traced back to persons, always, silence, not per se. Silence is not always done by a person. And silence is also something that pre-exists in a way a person. So it's already there. Mm -hmm. And people can walk through it and sometimes connect to it, basically. But that's also why silence is a more omnipotent kind of force. Mm. Uh, last week, I was I attended... Um online uh, PhD uh, defense of uh, one of my friends on uh, Islamophobia in France. And she was actually studying this uh, collective. She was also, she's a member of this collective of uh, against uh, Islamophobia in France. Mm -hmm. And she actually, one of her results is that, um, so originally they were anonymous. And I think at some point um, they start getting known, which actually brought them a lot of problems and also harassment and all this attack. And then I think one of her conclusion is that getting back to the infrapolitical way or like, you know, uh, because it was um, the, the, the impact of the actions were stronger when they were not known or they were anonymous. Uh, and then uh, kind of, as you said, this dance, as you really <laughs> explain it between the voice and silence. So when you use your voice and when you, you're not anonymous anymore, and when you actually use the, the silence or the, the hidden way of, 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 you know, doing your action. So I think it's, uh, 
I really like that it's really nuanced. It's not something that it's a zero or one. So it's um, it's there are more yeah. shades to it, you know. Absolutely. Also because they are both parts of the same um, communication uh, context, voice and silence. They always exist together. Um, no matter how um, simplistic our political metaphors become, you know, either you speak up or you are silent and blind. Like it's, it, in reality, it's not that way. Every conversation has voices and silences. Mm -hmm. And for every sentence that you decide to speak, even about innocent topics, for every sentence that you do speak, you're not speaking all the other alternative possible sentences that you could have said instead. Fights between you know, um, friends can start this way by accidentally saying the wrong thing, you meant it in a different way, you know, mm. or by not saying something that should have been said instead at exactly the right time. For every every conversation has voices and silences. And for every poem, like for everyone who ever appreciated a poem, you can always know why is a poem beautiful? It is beautiful for the things that it says and for the things that it doesn't say but makes you feel, for example. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's simple poetry. Same is true for political speech. Rhetorical analysis is exactly that. You look at the speech of some political spokesperson and then you try to understand why is uh, his arguments or their arguments so strong because of the things that they choose to say and the things that they choose exactly not to say, but they imply them, for example. Mm -hmm. For all of these uh, forms of communication, it is clear what, what the function of silence is. Only in activism, uh, so far as I can see, I have the feeling that it's really under... Uh, uh, undervalued silence whereas good activism also has both and it's not just you know so therefore i always say silence is not the opposite of voice it's the continuation of voice mm. and different things voice happens where silence ends and silence happens where voice ends most of the time both happen in one situation and that's why i think like it's, it's good to, to study forms of activism where both the voices are doing something that is powerful but their silences are also doing something that is powerful mm. You actually come up with four conceptualization of uh, probably you will you will unpack more in the future, but yeah. uh, so how you see silence and 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 voice? Yes. What are the types or the forms? Yeah, the, the taxonomy that I made in the in the book is and that's just the beginning I think because for the follow up research I really want to see um, um, more different kinds or also just delve deeper, dig deeper into them. But for in the book it's four chapters and every chapter has one pair. Because to me, voice and silence only makes sense when you compare them to the other side of it. So silence doesn't stand by itself. Mm -hmm. And um, to start at the end, because the last chapter is this, this uh, activist chapter, um, this is the voice and silence that is disruptive. So voice is disruptive, like writing the word genocide on a statue that otherwise people would probably ignore while walking past it. The use of voice here is disruptive. It interrupts kind of like the daily um, way people do their business and they have to stop and think but the way they use their silence is also disruptive because we are used to people explaining themselves and then we talk about it for a little bit, we debate it, then we draw some conclusions and then we move on. Whereas the, every time they say, no, we will not be interviewed, it disrupts the usual flow of the discourse. And uh, there's like a hampering, you cannot, it's like an obstacle. The silence becomes a disruption of, of, of the expectation. Then one step to the, the previous chapter. I'm sorry, I'm starting at the end because it somehow makes more sense in the in the in the logic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> previous chapter is about the statue as such. Like the Grau Eo, the activist group also protested against the statue by writing the word genocide on it. But I also have a chapter that is fully about the statue itself and about the the, the it's the entire case study where the statue fell over in 2012 accidentally. It wasn't even a form of protest, it just fell over because the crane truck toppled it by accident. 
and then the way in which the municipality handled the criticism it received for planning to put the statue back on its pedestal. And here, the voice and silence pair that I have, um, uh, that I discussed there, its voice as repression from the top of my head, silence as uh, resistance. So voice as repression, meaning like what I'm, I'm using the concept of repressive tolerance for that chapter. And uh, that's Herbert Marcuse, political philosopher. And repressive tolerance means that someone in power allows a subjugated person to use their voice. So a dissenting voice is allowed into the normative discourse. So the municipality can say, the statue belongs on its pedestal and we support this statue. And a group of protesters can say, no, the, this is a statue of a genocide committer. And we think it is an affront that it's standing there. And then the municipality can allow it. They can say, all right, you're, you have your right to your opinion. Maybe you will even officialize your voice somehow. And that's what they did. That's what the, the chapter is about. They put the statue back on its pedestal and then gave the voice of protest a space, a place in the public discourse by updating the plaque of the statue, where one sentence says something like, not everyone agrees that this man deserves a statue. Some people argue that giving person who was so violent, a statue is actually an insult to the survivors of this violence, something like this. And that's already more like the actual plaque is way more straightforward. They're just basically saying something like the statue is controversial. Some people disagree that it should exist. You know, and this is what I mean with voice as repression, because it's the opposite of what you think a voice does. Yes. The protest, the, the dissenting position gets a voice in the public discourse, but that's exactly, that's the moment of their neutralization. Yes. The moment their voice is included in the discourse, it's gone. You know, it's neutralized. Yeah, and then the government become uh, a tolerant, uh, you know, uh, actor uh, providing space for, uh, you know, diverse point of view. And then exactly. they actually even uh, uh, take the, 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 you know, the... the they're the good, they become the good one, right? They, yes. Credit, they take credit of this, right? Yeah. Exactly. And that's exactly so frustrating about tolerance. And that's the point of, of Herbert Marcuse. The tolerance mm -hmm. is repressive, most tolerance, he says, mm -hmm. because the moment that a person who's already in power tolerates someone disagreeing with them into their house, you know, into their, into their logic, the only thing that it does is praise the person who was in power more by saying, wow, you are so tolerant. Yeah, exactly. You know? so they shed light on the... Yeah. Yes. And that's what happened too, because the municipality and the museum connected to the Golden Age history uh, that's, that's located at the same square as the statue in Horn, the Vestries Museum, they received a prize later, a European award for uh, like uh, inclusive heritage practice. So they were awarded by the international European community for being so tolerant because oh they handled this controversy so well but actually you can also look at it more skeptically and think did they handle it at all the protest the voice of protest demanded that the statue be removed they did the opposite so they, they didn't realize, yeah, yeah. yeah nothing was handled but except the, the yeah the voices were neutralized and not by silencing them no by officializing them and giving them a place in the margins it's the last sentence on the new plaque as a kind of self-congratulatory move by the by the municipality of Horn saying, see how inclusive we are. Even voices of dissent receive a place in our uh, self-identity.
Mm. It's like so, Parliament where we put a black or, uh, you know, all these enterprises where we put a, a black person, a gay person, a Muslim person, you know, totally, yes. play the game of diversity and tolerance. And uh, and then then it's not anymore a problem. Then, of course, we can yeah. talk about racism anymore or, yeah. Mm. Exactly. And that's that's the, the voice as, as repression that I use in the chapter. And it's the same with greenwashing and pinkwashing. And so when, you know, when suddenly uh, every government starts using the word intersectionality into their uh, programs that they publish uh, on their websites, you know, then the word intersectionality is not a weapon for change anymore or an instrument for change anymore. It's actually an instrument for uh, conservation. It becomes a conservative uh, in, in the hands of the in the hands of the establishment, you know, and that's when when words are suddenly and voices used for the opposite of change. Mm. Same with pinkwashing. And then the moment that uh, every Disney movie now has representation of all the different uh, marginalized identities, we want to make sure that every Marvel and Star Wars movie has one person of color, uh, a, a female protagonist, uh, maybe a, a person who is gay, and also something with uh, a disability. You know, that happens more and more. And there is a, it's a sliding scale because it is also really complicated to say something about it. Because on the one hand, it's not bad that that happens, you know. On the other hand, it also neutralizes uh, uh, often uh, some of the struggles that people uh, still have to kind of like go through and that a society as such, for instance, still has to go through. It kind of is a shortcut. Yeah, it's a co-optation. Yeah, yeah, it's a co-optation. It's a co-optation, exactly. Yeah, it's also happening with this decolonizing thing, right? Also, unfortunately, it yeah, it becomes decolonizing, decolonizing. So the word itself is not strong anymore. It loses its meaning and it loses its causes. So yeah, this is always the risk. It's like Shell using the word environmentalist uh, all the time. You know, like uh, of course, and sustainability. When when a company like Shell starts to say sustainable planet, then you know that it's not. It doesn't mean anymore what it is supposed to mean. And this is always the risk of using voice. Silence then, because it's always coupled with the, the other side. Silence is then, I call it uh, resistance in the book, but it's basically a form of boycott. Mm. So yeah. this type of silence is different from the disruptive silence that the activist group uses because they're using their silence as a weapon. You know, they're just they're saying, we disrupt the, the, the regular flow of society by using silence actively. But the silence used um, in response to repressive tolerance is the silence of boycott. So it's this, the retreat basically mm. uh, which, which I, I located in the chapter by the original people who started the petition against the statue in 2012 you know they didn't want to be part of the inclusive farce of an exhibition that was organized around it like the celebration of repressive tolerance they they stepped out but this is a silence as a boycott so they retra retract their voices saying oh, we don't want to be part of this uh Circus, like one the, the the guy who started the the original protest in 2012, he called the the exhibition that was happening afterwards. He called it a circus. He said, "I don't I don't want to be part of this circus," you know. So he implicit, implicitly, if you are part of it, it means that you endorse. You are like yes, agree, right? yeah, exactly. And that was often all kinds of things wrong with this. So the museum organized an exhibition. The statue was placed back, and then the plaque was renewed. And they said some people disagree that the statue should exist and then there was an exhibition about young peter samakun the historical figure was he good or was he bad you know and it was like this but then there were a lot of things wrong with this exhibition for example everyone was white dutch there was no post-colonial people of color representation at all in this entire expo yet it received uh, the european award for inclusivity right 
Mm-hmm. It was it was it's all very bitter or ironic. So of course the people who started the petition, they retreat, they they stepped out. They were like that, that we will not be part of this farce where a bunch of people who were actually part of the problem are shaking each other's hands, saying, "Wow, we are all so inclusive." Yeah, and that is silence is boycott, which is a response to voices repression. The moment that you use your voice, it is taken from you. And, and it co-opts your, your identity or your position, it's better to not use your voice at all in these situations. And your silence can actually say way more mm-hmm. your absence from a particular discussion and yeah. say way more than your than your voice, the voice that you might add to it. I mean, talking about the boycott, uh, BDS is one of the strongest uh, movement because silence or boycott is, is uh, I mean, that's one, at least for the international solidarity with Palestine is, is, is really the thing you know, that we all can do uh, uh, to support and to be in solidarity with Palestine. And it's one of the strongest movement. And I mean, in France, I think it's forbidden. It's uh, So it does have an impact as well. Yeah. So it's not, uh, so the, the, yeah. So here you can see that, yeah, boycott and silence as resistance is really powerful and it could lead to an impact where usually we think of silence of something that will not change the thing or, you know, of course. Exactly. And it's still under occupation, but still, I mean, I think it has an impact, at least in international uh, community supporting uh, Palestine. Yeah. Yes, because and this, exactly, that's a very good example as well. And this is the kind of silence that can also be kind of, what do you say? Um, uh, the silence of anticipation, basically. It is a mm-hmm. silence, but not yet. It's kind of uh, until the political consensus or status quo changes, you know, this chair will remain empty. You know, I will not sit there at the table with you until we first change the, the, the setup of the table, basically. So that's a silence that is an invitation for change. So it's not an silence as an end point, but basically as a starting point for something new. Yeah, because by, by talking to you or interacting with you or... Um... I recognize you. Yes. So and if, yeah, and then by recognizing you, I'm giving you a place, which something that I'm not, you know, um, that not that's not the point, right? So I think it's um yeah, it's it's really interesting. Uh, so it's not the end, but it's the process. It's just to say, until now, I'm not giving you this. Yeah. Because the voice would be the end point, you know? The, giving the voice too early would be giving your yourself away. Yeah. Strange, yeah. confusingly, because that's usually not how people see speaking up. But of course, the voice is not always an instrument of, of agency. It can also be really the opposite. You can give the moment that you speak, that's, that's why they say uh, everything you say can be used against you. You have the right to remain silent. It's yes. in court, it's very much like that. The moment you speak, you have offered yourself maybe to the enemy, maybe to your opponent, you know, and it might be too soon. And your silence can be a way to protect your identity for as long as you feel it needs protection. Absolutely. And it helps to see in all of these circumstances that silence is not absolute and voice is not absolute because we often, our brains try to simplify everything, of course. So then we think, yeah, but complete silence, you know, that is also not useful. You have to explain yourself somehow, otherwise nobody even realizes that you're refusing to do something. And that's exactly the reality of it. So every silence is contextualized in voices. People always explain themselves somewhere, you know. So for the group of people that didn't want to become part 
of the quasi-inclusive exhibition in 2012, they weren't entirely silenced as if they were never speaking. You know, they were not uh, taking the vow of silence like monks. No, they were explaining themselves elsewhere. Just they didn't want to talk to the museum, but they talked to all kinds of other people, you know, explaining why they were not talking to them. And this is how silence and voice always work. There is always context and silence is contextualized within a logical voice and vice versa. Okay. Yeah. So this yeah. is silence as a resistance. And then yeah. you have silence as... Then the, the, going back into the into the book, the, the next the previous chapter is chapter two. That's just the one about the, the hijackings, mm -hmm. the train hijackings. And here, my biggest frustration and why I want, really wanted to write this chapter, it's one of the oldest ideas that I had for the book, one of the first chapters that I wanted to write. The hijackings are such a central story, yet such a ignored story in uh, Dutch media landscape. Again, everything is changing nowadays, but for the longest time, the fact that in the 1970s, there was a whole string of, of Moroccan uh, violent activism in the Netherlands, and it was, it was termed domestic terrorism. You know, that's, that's, that is pretty unique for the history of the Netherlands, but it is not in the history books per se. And then if it ever gets mentioned, which it does because, for instance, the Moroccan community has the yearly uh, commemoration uh, cer uh, ceremony where they go to the they go to the graveyard where six of the hijackers are are, are buried. Mm -hmm. Nineteen seventy-seven, they hijacked a train with nine people, nine Moroccans, and then the Dutch military intervened and they just surrounded the train with machine guns and with um, warplanes, and then uh, six of the nine hijackers were killed. Also, two of the hostages were killed by the military with accidental bullets. That is pretty extreme, you know. And uh, there is commemoration uh, uh, every year on the same date, and this is always in the news. So it's in the news, but it's, it's in the news in a very one-dimensional way. So this, I wanted to write a chapter about this as well, and then study how the Dutch society speaks about this case. And that is another limitation of voice that I found because voice can be kind of like a chorus, like a repeated, like a loop, the same story over and over again. We always have to start all the way at the beginning, then the same few things are explained about colonial history, and then we move to the hijackings, the same conclusions are drawn. So voice kind of like a, like a, a, a prison in a way. And the way in which I explained it in the, in the chapter was... It was appropriated voices, I think. So what it means is that spokespersons were basically cornered, people mm. from the Moroccan community, uh, people that were in the military task force that ended the hijacking, uh, the Moroccan president in exile, and then a few political spokespersons from the from the Dutch uh, side. They're all placed into a, into a forced conversation with each other. So this is about voices as as, uh, as appropriation which means that, for instance, some of the hijackers, you know, were interviewed over the years, the radical activists who used violence to uh, try to force the Dutch state into giving the Moroccan community their independent country. And then they were interviewed, individual people, right? That, cho that chose violence. And then the newspapers that interviewed them um, took their voices appropriated them and then amplified them as if these people were the voices of their community, quite literally, mm. you know? Mm. And that is also a risk of voice. If you are some kind of representative of some kind, your voice can become way too big for you. 
you can suddenly start speaking for the entire community, or at least it is listened to in this way, it's heard that way, and you don't maybe even mean it that way. And that's what that case study is about. So I, I compare media discourses about these hijackings and the memory of them, the collective memory of them, with individual accounts of, of individual hijackers, surviving hijackers, who are, are actually trying to step away and distance themselves from the history most of the time. They definitely don't want to be seen as representatives of their community. And uh, this is the discrepancy that I'm interested in. Your voice can quickly become, you know, the prison in which you are forced from now on. And this is also in a completely different kind of example, why many survivors of trauma, for example, don't want to become the voice of that trauma. They, they, they prefer not to become well known for the trauma that they suffered, victims of sexual assault, for example, because your voice can become the prison in which your identity is then stuck forever. At that point, you are always the voice in the face of this or that trauma. So speaking up can also be a hindering to moving on. That's certainly the case for the hijackers, but also for some of the military, um, the Dutch uh, soldiers that were actually recruited to stop the hijacking. That was the other side, of course. They were then supposedly the heroes mm. who saved the Dutch state from domestic terrorism. And then the government wanted to give them some medals for heroism, and then they refused the medal, the soldiers of the task force. And then their spokesperson, the, the captain who, uh, the sergeant who, uh, who led the task force, he said, look, uh, I just did what the state ordered me to do. So I'm not a hero. I'm not some kind of vigilant who took uh, matters into his own hand and then killed a bunch of people. He literally says it like that. I killed Moluccan subjects, you know, on orders of the state. So it is really strange to then amplify my voice and my actions by giving me a medal as if I did this on my own account, like a superhero. It's really not that way. I was just following orders. You know, and then it becomes really interesting to see what happens when human beings are stripped of their individuality and they just become voices for a particular cause, even without them wanting to. And mm -hmm. individual soldiers can become the voice of the Dutch state and individual Moluccan hijackers can become the voice of the Moluccan community, as if the entire community chose violence, right? There were nine hijackers, there were tens of thousands of Moluccans. Some of them chose violence. Some of the surviving ones, later, when they were in prison, went on the record and said, I wouldn't do it again, you know, like it was a mistake. But their voices can still, you know, be immortalized, basically, taken away from them again. So your voice can be stripped of you, amplified, frozen in time, from that moment onwards, this is what you stand for. And all the people that you supposedly represented, this is what they stand for. Another risk of voice to me. But as a prison, it could imprison you. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. Yes. And you need many, many words to explain yourself, you know, and to properly represent yourself as a complex person who can also change over time. Mm. You know, I mean, and this, this as a as academic, right? I think, especially if, I don't know, if you are a person of color or post-colonial, with those topics, it's like uh, you have an etiquette. And I think that's why also, I, at least for me, I think um, I try to be careful and careful in a way that you have really to think <laughs> many times before putting your voice there because it could be against you and it could be appropriated and it could be, um, and as we are evolving, learning, uh, you know, opening up to different other new perspectives. So we're not, uh, we are not the same person, right? So it's also, it's it's sad that it, uh, yeah, it, it imprison you and uh, put you in one um, box, 
in a way. Exactly. Mm. Yes, and that is also a, a timely, uh, um, you know, realization because that's very much an issue within the so-called uh, cancel culture era, where people, especially as they become more famous or uh, more prominent in the public discourses, have to be really careful with what, what they have said in the past, you know, in a changing paradigm, thing, voices that are recorded that could eventually be used against them. In the past, you could just say the wrong thing, you know, and it could be used against you immediately, you know, um, when you were uh, whatever a politician and you were, you know, you said something in an unnuanced way on the newspaper, this could be really bad for your campaign. Nowadays, this is an anxiety that goes over time. A person could become, you know, like we can ourselves feel this, like we become more prominent scholars with a voice out there that is recorded. And then we have to really think back and think, did I ever make any kind of problematic statement 15 years ago when I was also stupider? Like I didn't actually think as much as I do these days, you know, is it somewhere out there? Because mm -hmm. it can still be used against you. And that is also what Wendy Brown says, the political theorist. She says, uh, or something, I'm paraphrasing it, but something like our voices can become the prisons uh, by, by which we are judged. Yeah. It can be really hard to escape your own voice eventually. Should we remain silent? <laughs> yeah, and exactly. So that's the voice is appropriation. Voice can be the exact weapon that is used against you. Then what is the silent element of it? So the, in that chapter, I say silence is protection. Mm. So silence is the thing that you do, not to be not to be quoted out of context. Silence is the thing that you choose to do, especially if you represent somebody else which can often, because this can happen before you know it, right? If, if, if a person is interviewed five times by newspapers, suddenly this is the voice in the face of the community that they represent. That is usually involuntary. It's just mm -hmm. that society thinks this way. Who is the representative of this entire group of people? We can't interview all of them. You know, we interview one. This person speaks for everyone. But and it's also, really, yeah. really true. That's also very colonial, reducing people, reducing, homogenizing, you know, this kind of we put people in category or a community in in a, in a category you know the refugee the voice of the refugee the voice of the the voice of the black migrant the voice of uh, you know uh, yes. women the, the voice of uh, and that's it yeah yeah and and usually people who put themselves easily on the front stage are not necessarily those who you know <laughs> who would be more critical or uh, yeah. yeah yeah you need a certain uh, amount of bravado to uh, put yourself out there as uh, someone who's uh, you know visible and indeed like you said those are not always actually the most nuanced or careful yeah. people so the entire process is com complex and it is also similar to the it, it is a form of tokenism again because you basically need one violent activist who is doing something for the cause of some bigger uh, community uh, ideology or, or ideal. And then this can become the icon of that entire community. Mm. So it's like the Martin Luther King versus Malcolm X kind of uh, conversation. Mm. You know, is the, the, the civil rights movement violent or is it nonviolent? You know, it's based on these two people who chose different, different routes to kind of try to reach the same goal. But the entire discourse around it simplifies it to these two options. They were either violent, reckless, kind of uh, unapologetic, or they were careful, well-spoken, uh, but in the end, uh, not active enough, like too passive, for example. Those are, those, are, those are the options that you then get. 
mm-hmm. and that's voices appropriation. The moment you stand for something, you know, the entire community that you try to help can also be reduced to just the thing that you said, you know? Yeah. Which to me, again, is the opposite of voices empowerment. It means voices reduction, voices simplification. It's voices, yeah, it's voices uh, reduction, absolutely. It's, um... Yeah. And then the, the first one with the, and it's also nice to go back to um, the way also you started this, uh, this work as something that comes from your uh, personal history and this kind of... Uh, uh, gap that you found between what your family is telling you, the history of your family, the memory that are transmitted through your family uh, history, and then things that you study uh, in school. And then, uh, as you said, your your grandmother is Moluccan. Yes, and and that's the and she is the the topic of my of my first chapter actually. The chapter that I really loved, I think it, it really touched me a lot. I think I, I really, really loved. Yeah? Yeah. It's really... This chapter is very interesting because it's um, it interpels more than the not only the, the cognitive part of it, of the rationality behind it, but also a lot about the effect. And the, it also tells a lot about you as a researcher, I think, and this complexity of, you know, that's also an identity that is not the, only the intellectual, is your lived experience and the way you put it in, um, you know, how, how can we also learn, all of us, from this? Uh, yes. Yeah, exactly. No, thank you. And that's also why I start. Yeah, we now do it at the end, basically, but it becomes a beautiful full circle that way. That is true, because the, the book starts with this chapter, of course. I mean, there's a general introduction and then the book starts with the chapter, which is about my grandmother and her silences and her voice, you know. And then uh, so my grandmother, the Moluccan uh, um, grandmother, who came as a 12 year old child to the Netherlands with her father, the colonial army soldier. And uh, I think, and the, the the title, like the voice and the silence that I see is the silence is an empowering silence. And the voice is what I call a deceptive voice. And to explain what that means, I think the easiest way is to just really quickly tell the story of the grandmother. Don't you yeah. think? Like it's probably the fastest yeah, 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 yeah. to yeah. get there. So like the story is, is, is more nuanced in the, in the book, but really quickly, what happened? It's a story that my father told me many times is that when he turned 18 years old um, and he's so his mom is Malakan, that's my grandmother. His dad is Dutch, my grandfather. Um, and they married very young, my grandmother and grandfather. And it was also against the will of the, the family to some extent. It was all very controversial for her to marry a Dutch person in the time because the Dutch were the enemy. So uh, my father is a child of this kind of uh, uh, marriage and then um, was born and raised in the Netherlands. And then and uh, uh, when he turned 18, his dad, my grandpa, gave him uh, for as a birthday present a ticket plane tickets to Maluku, to Ambon, to Ambon, and uh, also a plane ticket for my grandmother. And he didn't do it for himself because he had, was afraid of flying. So he didn't, and I also think that's not the only, I just, I just don't think he didn't want to come. So he just had a plane ticket for his wife and a plane ticket for his son. And I said, you guys can go back to your roots and check it out for two weeks uh, as a kind of like a vacation. So that was nice. And it was very expensive, so it must have taken him a long time to save up for that. They weren't exa- exactly rich, as you can imagine. So they went to Ambon for my dad's 18th birthday. And my dad thought that the village 
on the island where my grandmother was born was called Liti. And for the Moroccan community, this is because it's an island, uh, it's a archipelago, right? It's hundreds of islands, 500 inhabited islands. And um, so what you always ask is which island, which village, if you find somebody else in the diaspora. So my dad thought uh, about his mom, okay, the village is called Liti on the island of Ambon. So they went to, to uh, Ambon and then my dad asked, so can we go to the village? Can we visit the village where you were born, Liti? And my grandma was then starting to use what I call deceptive voice. And she started to use what I call empowering silence because what she did was she said, oh no, I don't, we cannot go to the village today because uh, I uh, am still a little bit jet lagged, I'm tired you know, maybe tomorrow. And then the next day, my dad would say, okay, so are, the, are you feeling better? Maybe we can go to the, the village today, Liti. I'd like to see where you were born. No, my grandma would say, I've heard that uh, it gets really, um, really hot uh, today and uh, the weather is not great. Uh, I think we would get too tired, so we should probably stay inside or you can do something by yourself. I'm staying in the hotel room. And then the next day he would say, what about today? And he said, no, actually, uh, an uncle and aunt that are living close by have, uh, you know, invited us for dinner. We should go there today instead and so on and so forth. So every day she found excuses not to go to Liti, the village where she was born. So the, the voice and silence are already working together here. Clearly, my grandma is not silent. She's explaining herself constantly, but she's keeping something from my dad. And also he's not, you know, blind. He, he understands that there is some kind of weird secret going on and he doesn't understand what it is. But silence can all, and this is already a first indication that silences can be strong. It's his mom. So he's thinking as an 18 year old, I don't know what she's doing, but, and also don't feel comfortable asking or like uh, confronting her with it. So he just keeps on trying, mm. you know? So he's kind of tiptoeing around her silence here and taking her voices, her deceptive voices at face value. Although he knows that she's actually manipulating the story somehow away from the village that he wants to visit. Then on the last day of the vacation, they still haven't gone to the village. They've done a many things, but they haven't gone to her village of birth. And to him, this doesn't make any sense because it's also her first time back to Maluku after she was forcefully removed from there as a 12-year-old. So he doesn't understand. He finally becomes angry. You know, he's also a teenager, so he really becomes angry. Then it all explodes. And on the last day, he screams at his mother. He says, what are you? keeping a secret from me, you know, what are you not telling me? Why are we not going to this village? And then typical Moluccan style, it's a hotel on the ground floor with open windows. Um, you know, the windows were open, a random passerby comes past the window and he hears the commotion, he hears the conflict. So he sticks his head through the window and he says, hello, <laughs> um, I am hearing some kind of a conflict or a fight. Is there anything I can do to help? Random passerby, stranger. And my dad says to him, Yes, I'm here with my mom and she, you know, she is from here. I was born in the Netherlands and we're here to visit uh, 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 her birthplace, but she doesn't want to take me to her birth village. And he says, well, okay, maybe I can help. So what's the name of the village? And my dad says, the village is called Liti. And the man says, okay, um, well, Liti is not a village on Ambon. Liti is not a village at all. Liti is an island. Uh, like 500 kilometers south of Ambon with villages. You know, there's villages on Liti. Liti is an island. So something must be going wrong here. So then this is a huge confusion. My dad becomes even more angry. He says, but what is the like? That is really strange. What is going on now? 
And she was silent. So she And she refuses to explain, but she starts to cry though. So again, whenever a person is silent, it doesn't mean they're non-communicative. Usually we are communicating with our bodies, you know, with our eyes. Uh, silences are never just an, an absence or a black hole of meaning. Whenever we're not using our voice, we're probably using other means of communication. So she's communicating that this is all very complicated for her and that she doesn't want to talk about it and she doesn't want to explain herself. So uh, this, this conflict just kind of dries up eventually because my dad also realizes there's no really, there's no way that you can't really solve this by, by screaming more. We just have to kind of uh, keep it together and go home because the island is like 500 kilometers south of Ambon. There was no way to go there now on the last day before the flight. Also because the island is small, there is no airport. He would have to take a ship. Ship only comes once a week. There was no way. So he would, he realized he would go home without ever seeing where she was actually from. And he realized they had been on the wrong island basically for two weeks. So very strange uh, silence, uh, partly because it was not a full silence, because she still used her voice a lot, basically to, to manipulate my dad into trying to, you know, uh, so, so that he would maybe not realize there was a silence going on there. She mm -hmm. also agreed to go to Ambon, right, which is the wrong island. She could have said, no, 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 misunderstanding. Yeah, yeah. Because mm. that is what my dad always emphasized in his, when he explained this to me for the book also. He said she never lied. Actually, it was a big misunderstanding that she orchestrated. So she never said, I am from the village of Liti on the island of Ambon. She always just said, I am from Liti. But she never said Ambon. But the thing is, the majority of the Moluccan community is from Ambon. 90-something percent is from Ambon. So it's such a big percentage of the Moluccans in the Netherlands that until the 80s, Basically, they were called Ambonese. The Dutch were just, and also in the newspapers, they were referred to as Ambonese people, even for the 10% or something that was actually not from Ambon or the islands around Ambon. Like two and a half percent of the community that is actually from Muluku uh, uh, Southwest. You know, I mean, that it's is the story of silencing and voicing, right? Who's, yeah. who's the community? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So, so my grandpa who knew very little about indonesia you know he had just married this this woman but he didn't speak uh, uh, indonesian or anything he didn't know much about the history also didn't really care you know he just had thought she's probably ambonese because they're all called ambonese people so he just you know checked out flights to to ambon and then my dad had assumed liti is then probably a village in ambon but he probably has said this to his grandma all the time so uh, to his mom to his mom all the time so there is still a silence in there because she uh, she, she was okay with this kind of miscommunication uh, surviving to such an extent that she even agreed with the kind of ridiculous plan to go to the wrong island rather than to somehow at some point put it straight. So like with any silence, it starts to beg an explanation. We want to know why, you know, why did she not want to go back to her birth village and why did she not even want to discuss it, you know? And that's also how I describe it in the chapter, the easiest ways and I notice this always, especially with Dutch people, the easiest way to interpret this is by saying, oh, she was traumatized. She doesn't want to return. It would be too painful. You know, she doesn't want to think about it. It's a memory of war. It would be too painful. And of course, because every silence is also ambivalent, this is partly true, you know. But to simplify the entire complex situation like that and say this is just because of trauma would force us into the usual uh, thought patterns about silence. Oh, so it was a silence that is her weakness. That's like a disease that she could be healed from by learning how to speak about it. Voice mm -hmm. becomes medicine, silence is the disease. And these are all the parts that I don't agree with. Because for one, I knew my grandma, 
she passed away a while ago. I was, I think, 12 or 13 when she passed away, but I was old enough to remember her well. And I remember that she was very loud, laughing, talking, screaming, like loud person. You could always hear her coming, you know, from a mile away when they would visit. She would, you would already hear her when they were still around the corner of the other street. So she was very loud, but she also had very clear silences. And I remember this. There would be days where she wasn't speaking a word or she, there would be days where she was just sitting somewhere uh, um, looking at something. And there were certainly certain topics that she would refuse to talk about. And usually not because she would not become angry and say, I don't want to talk about this. No, she would do quite the opposite. She would laugh. She would say, not today. Let's talk about something that is more fun. You know, this is the way also to me as her grandson, the oldest grandson, she would try to deflect certain topics using her voice, tiptoeing around certain silences that she wanted to keep in place. My silences that I know from her were never weak. You know, I never thought, oh, how sad for her that she cannot talk about this. If only she would learn how to speak. You know, I always thought these silences, for instance, were somewhat intimidating. Yes. They were kind of almost, they were powerful just in the simplest sense of the word. They were so powerful that you wouldn't, you could almost feel them in the room. You know, if you would walk into the room, if you would walk into the room asking for candy and she would be in one of her quiet moods, I would be like, ooh, like not today. Like, and I would tiptoe back out of the room and close the door softly and think like, I'm not going to disturb this silence. So mm -hmm. the silence is almost like a wall. It's almost tangible. But I'm respect yeah yeah, yeah. So how could it be weak and it's the same with my dad because it is the story is so strange that it really happened you know it's almost like a strange little little allegory or fiction or something but mm. we could ask ourselves why didn't he just on the first day immediately tell her what's going on you know why don't you want to go to your village even if you're jet lagged we are also going to whatever uh, to the market and they're buying some food later so if you can do that why not just go the island is not that big we could take uh, an object you know like a taxi but he didn't. So that is an interesting element that is that is there. He, it took him the entire vacation to finally dare to break the silence, you know? So it's not a weak silence at all. It's a very strong silence. And that's how I also analyzed in the chapter. It is a silence that my grandma chose mm. to, to keep for herself. It is a silence with which she keeps control over her narrative, certain elements of the story that she refuses to share with others because she doesn't want the story to be taken away from her. Yeah, I mean, it's it was really intriguing for me when I read it because I I guess I was also into this curiosity of what does this silence mean? It's so, and I think that's where you really see it's powerful because yeah, it just one thousand explanation, you know, you you can yeah. and that, which means that you will never take her story from her. Exactly. Really powerful. It is like a. Uh, owning the story and not letting you know yeah and it is not anything as simple as a simple secret because there was no dishonorable thing that she was trying to hide she would also very often say to me like even when i was 12 i was old enough i was going to high school and i heard something about history and i was interested in colonial history already as a child i would ask her sometimes a thing or two about it and she would always say something that comes actually surprisingly close to what the activist group the Grau says to the newspapers she would say you want to know this kind of stuff is already written somewhere don't ask me just look it up you know and this is a silence but it's not the silence of oh you know i don't want to talk about it i don't know how to no it's a silence where she says don't ask this to me you know i have better things to do with my time than being forced into a conversation about this topic with you just ask somebody else who knows you know and this is a form of silence that that, that is to me an empowering form of silence people use it as a way to keep their dignity 
Yes. Because forcing yeah, would be to give away a part of yourself into negotiation where you think that it shouldn't be in, in negotiation. Yeah, and it's a, like a responsabilization of again, it's your role to tell me again what you know what happened. Yeah. What, yeah, what are you and I think toward her husband, your grandpa, maybe that was also her way of telling him you never asked. You just exactly assumed, you know, because that's the way I hear you saying, you know, he thought he what he didn't really care or he didn't really know or he didn't ask her. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We we don't right. know what happened, exactly. right? But in a way, this the fact that he assumed that because 90%, uh, I think it's also her way of like it's also like this she cried, but also there is a ha ha ha, you know, you thought that you are so sure of yourself, but yeah. then it's another place, which I think really powerful because um it's it's uh, she really played the game in a way. Yeah. Okay, you want to go exactly. there? He decided that you want to go there. I think exactly. really a kind of, uh, it's a complexity. It's also, uh, I mean, of course, I'm interested in feminist um, scholarship and feminist way of resistance, but I think it's also very clever way of, if you decided, or if you, because it was not her decision. She was, she was not the one deciding that today she wants to go back and, you know, exactly. uh, you know, discover or reconnect with her roots. It was his decision, and he thinks that's a good way for her and for the son to go back to their roots. Um, and right. I think the story is very complex because you also have Molokan and Dutch married with the in a con in a particular context uh, with a lot of controversies. Uh, so I yeah. think, um, but it's it's really fascinating that uh, she would actually play the game. And as you said, he saved, I don't know, for how long to get this this money. And then at the end, it's not what you're looking for. So yeah. I own the truth. I know the truth. And you cannot just take it from me when you decided. It. It's me who decide when to talk about it and when to reveal and what to reveal. Absolutely. And that is, of course, you're, yeah, you're, really, you're really right. Because, of course, my grandpa meant well, you know, but he was also clearly overwriting uh, whatever wishes his wife had. Because mm -hmm. like you said, it's very likely that she didn't want to go back at all, you know? And that is also, you know, not that uncommon because after all, we discussed this, this particular history. It is a history of loss, like many diasporic histories are. It is not only a dispersal and a fragmentation through space, but also through time. Mm -hmm. There is no country to come back to because the country was, you know, lost. So the, what you come back to is actually Indonesia now, which was exactly what they were fighting against. So what are you coming back to in the first place? Then there were all these other complicated elements, including the fact that she was married to a Dutch person. So it was not as if her entire family that are pretty traditional when it comes to marriage rules, Bella, we call it, you know, who was allowed to marry whom and stuff, definitely not uh, Dutch people at this time. So there's this element in it as well, like what would be the, the win for her to go back to her, her family who might like in the best scenario, they, um, they don't understand it, you know, or what's going on or the, the complexities of colonial war and everything also didn't really reach the Moluccan villages per se. This is a very particular diaspora that came out of a soldier, uh, you know, culture. The people that came to the Netherlands did not come from Maluku. They came from barracks stationed all over Indonesia. They were soldier families, the sons often already the children of soldiers before. So indeed she had her primary school time not in Maluku at all. She hadn't been there for years. Like she came to the Netherlands as a 12 year old, but she was maybe for the last time in Liti, where she was from, maybe when she was a toddler. And then she lived in barracks all over the country. She lived through the entire, you know, independence war from 45 till 49, 
never in Maluku, that was in Jakarta and it was all throughout Western Indonesia, wherever the army would be taken. So when was the last time she had really been there? There's all these considerations to, to take in. And then of course it makes sense to just retreat and think whatever. Um, but could silence actually, that's, that's maybe something also when I study infrapolitics and of course here it's not infrapolitics or maybe other shade of uh, yeah. the questions that remain. And I think you, you were a bit talking about this. Uh, could silence challenge the structural dominance? I mean, could, could, could silence, uh, of course, you always talk about this kind of uh, dance or uh, coexistence of silence and, and, um, and voice, but could silence actually lead to, uh, to a change? I mean, at the end of the day, again, now we, if, we, if we are targeting the end point, liberation, reparation could silence serve this or could silence lead to this liberation i think um partly and this will it's of course a speculative uh, type of question and therefore the, the the answer can also only be, be speculative but I, I think the most important one of the the the, the fundaments of, of of my 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 research about this is always that voice and silence work together whether we like it or not, like whether we recognize it or not. So also to see an endpoint of, of, of actual political change for the better, for instance, to me is never because of silence per se, but also never because of voice per se. It's always because of the interplay between them. And if we see it like that, we always contextualize both as part of, of uh, an articulation. You know, every sentence has a, vo a voice and a, and a few silences, every sentence. So if we see it like that, then yes, of course, silence can, can be used to reconfigure society in several different ways. It can be the silence of listening to the other person. It can be a silence of therapy, taking a moment of silence together to um, not, not immediately over-scream our complex feelings about a certain chapter of history, but to just be in the moment and feel it together. That can be silence as therapy. Again, very common in actual therapy, couples therapy. Two mm -hmm. people can really look each other in the eye anymore. What can the therapist ask them to do? Sit across the table from each other and be quiet for two minutes or five minutes and just look into each other's eyes. Many things can be communicating this way that could just be avoided through voice. Voice can be deceptive, you know? And society could, 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 could do the same thing. And sometimes it does in the more obvious rituals like commemoration rituals of two minutes of silence. But I think... One thing what we can do as, as a, a society, for example, as post-colonial society, is give silence more active space, more active roles in the things that we do to deal with the past, for example. And that is also one of the purposes of my, my research, especially the follow-up research, the postdoc that I'm now doing, which is called listening to silence. I want to see, I want to activate it a little bit. So not only to realize, oh, these are all the functions of silence and this is actually how it could work, but also to see how does it translate, for instance, into policy making or into actual um, curation, like if a museum decides, not just once because it is quirky, but like as a common thing, what space could silence take in our uh, exhibition about slavery, for example? Currently in the Netherlands, they're building um, a slavery museum. So a museum commemorating the histories, uh, the, the intersecting histories of slavery. And for these kinds of projects, I would like to see silence not as an afterthought, you know, but as a common element in a project like that. And, and this is where, where I would want to take, and, it's, and the same is true for society at large. I think it would be really helpful 
if uh, public debates that happen all the time about certain topics also become more conscious as a standard uh, uh, of the silences that happen in any conversation and not just think, oh, which extra voices do we need at the table? That is, you know, diversity in its most simplistic rhetoric. You know, uh, we need more voices at the table. It's always more voices, more voices. And there is something to say for it. But if for every conversation there are meaningful silences paired to every meaningful voice that is, that is ever spoken, it would be useful to translate this also into, into um, active, uh, um, you know, um, um, design. Mm. Imagine a public debate about uh, the colonial past where that's just, it can be really simple, you know, that just starts with a moment of silence together uh, where people don't say anything. It can still be televised, you know, it can be on camera because si even televised silences can be really powerful if you're watching from home, you know? And immediately many people would say, well, that sounds extremely hippie-esque because if we're all taking a, like a little meditation moment uh, for, first or together, it's not that strange anymore. Um, already the more uh, modern and uh, inventive uh, teachers are uh, are incorporating this in their into their pedagogy you know sometimes I do it myself teachers that start their classes with a moment of silence we're all taking one or two minutes of silence why to reconnect to connect as a group of people together into the classroom to kind of um, declutter yourself from everything that has happened before to be able to focus on, on this that is happening now it is happening at conferences in um, um, places such as uh, um, Melbourne, where I, in, in Australia, where I had a conference a few years ago uh, at the law and culture, um, in, in, at the law faculty, but it was a law and humanities conference. Um, yeah, we started most of the panels with a moment of silence, also to um, uh, respect the fact that the university is built in occupied territory, that First Nations were uh, pushed into the margins of Australia when the, the British uh, arrived. And... Um, these are very straightforward ritual ways in which silence could receive a more active place in the way in which you organize uh, conversations. Mm. You know? And this is how I would see it. So not silence taking over. Silence as the final bliss of release or something where society could really come. Like that, that could be really beautiful for a novel, you know, where, it, where you can work on a more symbolic level. But in, in, in practical reality, what I would really like to see is that silence just receives the, its deserved place next to voice, you know? as an equally strong uh, instrument for change. And then how we listen to silence? Yeah, yeah this, and this is the, the open question, like, a, like if we do another podcast in four years from now, when this, this research is over, maybe I will have a really good and elaborate answer to this. But for, for now, that, that's what I'm, I'm trying to figure out. And a lot of it has to do with affect theory, yeah. because you know the moment that we stop using our voice, mm. uh, we start communicating in other means. And we also start to, be able to communicate in way more complex and ambivalent ways because very often what you feel when you're with somebody for instance just um, in the in a car and nobody's saying a word you may feel several things at the same time some of which are also contradicting each other you know like uh, happiness sadness uh, fear uh, safety like a, a bunch of things can happen at the same time that actually make no sense and then when someone is asking how are you feeling you know and then you put it into words you simplify the actual feeling and um, just all of these kind of things, I want to translate them so on societal level. Often everything becomes simplified the moment we put it into words. So how could we hold on to some of the complexity and ambivalence that exists in silence without you know, risking that it gets overwritten, erased, ignored, missed accidentally? You know, that's the risk. Silence is also a precarious form of communication. It can easily be forgotten, ignored, or missed. 
Then again, voice is also precarious because you can easily be misunderstood, quoted out of context, etc. Yeah, I think the challenge is uh, how to grasp the full potential and strength of silence without falling in this uh, romanticization or you know appropriation as well or things that you mentioned you mentioned before. Yeah. Yes. I still think that that some of the this the like if you want to have pragmatic ways to, to get to get started, I still think that some of the more ritualistic uses of silence are really not a bad thing uh, at all. Because again, when we think about it, voice is also used in a similarly um, um, ritualistic way. When there is a meeting and everyone has to have a say, you know, everyone in favor, you know, these are all ritualistic ways of using voice as well. Even the way in which the contract works, where you put your name and your you know like a signature on every page, this is a form of ritualistic voice that is, it's, it's supposed to simplify something that we all know it's way more complicated than the simple signature, like uh, that this voice is ritual and silence is also ritualistic. So like even, I would even be happy if it becomes common practice for any public debate that is televised taking place in a museum, mm -hmm. for instance, about the colonial past to start with uh, two minutes of silence, if that becomes common practice, because mm -hmm. it can. It's not very different from every panel discussion ending with a Q&A from the audience. It's not as if all of these questions can really reach very deep. It is a ritual to kind of give the audience the feeling that they also have a say. This is words and voices used ritualistically. Silence can be used ritualistically in an equally simple and straightforward way, even if this happens. And it's already becoming, you know, I don't have to kickstart it all alone. Like it's, it's already happening. It's becoming more and more common that people take a moment of silence together, for example, at the beginning of some event. Even if this becomes completely standard, as standard as a Q&A at the end, you know, then I'm already very happy. Yeah, because at least it will uh, re um, deconstruct the meaning of silence. Yes. And even if it becomes mainstream, but at least it will, uh, yeah, it will give us a different, uh, different understanding of silence. Yes. And it maybe an equal position with the voice. Yeah. So it gets, it gets uh, yeah. Hmm. Exactly that. And I think it is, it's, yeah, it is often even better to, to start from such pragmatic little solves, so to yeah. say, rather than to, to try it from top down to kind of change the entire way in which, of course, that would be nice, like the, and to change the entire way in which society works and to kind of reinvent democracy in such a way that mm -hmm. it has, it gives space to everything that actually cannot be said or placed, put into so many words. But um, that, that is very haughty and complicated to do just like that. So until that point, I think it would be nice. And I'm uh, implementing it in, in my classrooms, for example, right? Like uh, to, to do it sometimes, to have instead of a question round afterwards, actually a non-question round, to have two minutes where everyone is just sitting there, not looking at their phones after part of a lecture. Because in, these, in this moment of two minutes, we're still all together in the classroom and the topics that were discussed before are still resonating in our heads. And it's a matter of trust. And it is really hard also for a teacher because we are trained to you know, assess our students based on what they say and write in their papers, for example. If they're not saying anything, and I am not saying anything, it can become really awkward really quickly. And at least this is the obstacle that many people feel, because I've taught, I've even taught workshops with other teachers on them, including more silence in the classroom, for example. This is the immediate obstacle. They say, yeah, but that's just really weird. You know, you don't know what's going on. And then I always tell them, until you try it for once, you know, just try it for two minutes. The awkwardness lasts 10 seconds. After that, it's not awkward anymore. And it can actually be really liberating to, for once, not have the pressure, not only for the teacher, but for all the students there to not have to say a word. 
and to just think together. Yeah. At some point, I was taking a voice um, um, sessions because my voice is very soft, and uh, usually when I talk, at least in the classroom, it's um, yeah, some of my students would not really hear me, and I think um, so. One part of it is this softness of my voice, I can see that the students become more focused also, they listen. Mm -hmm. So it imposes a certain kind of, uh, you know, they, they, they become more attentive to what I'm saying. So when I was taking these sessions, one of the things that the coach was telling me is to allow room for silence. So it was part of the training that when I talk, especially now, like I'm talking in a foreign language where I need to articulate more and I need to also allow. So I think initially I was scared of silence because for me, silence means that I don't know what to say. Mm. And it means that uh, I'm losing my uh, my ability to express my thoughts. Where actually uh, what I learned is like with this silence, first you, the other, you allow room for the other to digest what you've been saying. It mm. will also impose a certain, um, it, it imposes a certain kind of attention more to what you're saying. Uh, so the the communication become even more intense and more uh, deep in a way. And, and honestly, as you said, I don't. I never took two minutes of silence like you do. I think I really would love to to do it. Um, but usually, when I start a session, because of this, because of my soft voice, I will just stand there. The students will be talking. At a certain moment, I will be just silent. And at some point, they will start. You know, the course will start immediately. They will just feel that, you know, now we start. And it's very, yeah. it's very um, organic, you know, it happened naturally. Yeah. Really nice. So it, I think, as you said, it's only we have to emancipate ourselves from this fear of the silence, you know, the fear of, of not being able to speak or not being able to talk or not being able because yeah. it has its place in the, in the communication. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, very exactly yeah it's 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 a really good even just um yeah teacher trick to kind of instead of raising your voice like many people do all right we're starting i'll close the door like instead of what you do do say nothing become quiet entirely and you will see that it is immediately powerful because mm -hmm. people realize it that you are not saying a word and you're also standing still you know silence can also translate itself into lack of movement for example so there's a stillness around you this will probably um, um, uh, give uh, give them a stronger uh, incentive to stop talking themselves as well. Silence also breeds more silence, you know. So, yeah, it really depends on the expectations of the context. If you are in a context like a traditional classroom where everyone, a small classroom where everyone is supposed to say something, then if you are a shy person, you can feel a horrible pressure to speak up where actually that's not comfortable for you. The other way around. If you are usually a loud person and you accidentally step into a museum space or some kind of library where everyone's quiet, you know, then you feel that you're the odd one out and you actually have to hold yourself from saying or when someone asks you something in a whispered voice to remember to keep your voice down and stuff. It's really what, what does the context expect of, of, of you as a communicator. Mm. And that's, again, why I am hopeful that it is possible to incorporate more silence as standard in uh, certain uh, uh, um, parts of society, like public debate, because we already have really good spaces of silence in every society, like uh, uh, temples and, and places of worship, but also like museums and also like libraries, places of, of, of knowledge. And, and, and th th these are such common big 
well-known spaces of any society, you know, that it makes no sense to not see how that could be something that we could also integrate into, into something like public debate. Because public debate is about speaking, right? Yes, but and again, the library is also about uh, uh, speaking to some extent. You are still exchanging something. It's not as if the entire purpose of a library is silence. It's just important to realize silence and voice, they're always together. But in some societal contexts, one of them is focused on and, and, and amplified, and in some societal contexts, the other one is amplified. And usually it's best for communication if they can be equalized, mm. if we can find a balance between voice and silence. Well, what, what a great topic. <laughs> really, really, I'm looking forward to hear more about this uh, new project on listening to silence, silences. Mm. Um, maybe one last question or not question, like um, if you have any author, book, podcast, movie yeah. uh, that you want to recommend, that would be great. Yes, again, yes, actually, uh, um, that's really nice. Well, I have a film that I could recommend, but it is not a fun film. It's a very, uh, like, uh, it's about trauma, so it is, uh, it's probably not for everyone, so then I'm giving that as a trigger warning, but uh, it's called uh, The Look of Silence. That's the title, and it's by uh, Joshua Oppenheimer, and it's about Indonesia, and it is part two. His first movie is called The Act of Killing, and it is also about Indonesia, and it's, he's focusing on the history in the 1960s, where uh, there was the so-called communist purge, uh, a really horrible period of chaos where, um, uh, well, the, the name communist purge kind of speaks for itself. So the neighbors were becoming each other's enemies really quickly, uh, villages were decimated, uh, people were in a state of like a societal paranoia, everyone could be uh, out to get you, and this was 65, 66. And he made these two movies about it. Uh, Act of Killing is a form of uh, um, um, participatory kind of uh, 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 therapy where he forced, not forced, but kind of invited former killers, you know, people who were killing communists uh, on orders of the state to kind of relive it by reenacting it in a kind of uh, quasi-fictional theatrical context. And then he, you know, really manages to reach people, but it is also very controversial. So this is the movie, The Act of Killing, and then The Look of Silence, and that is the, the one that is less written about. The Act of Killing is pretty famous, but The Look of Silence, less so, movie from 2014. And that's, and I find it really meaningful that he tried to make a second movie where it's all about the things that cannot be reenacted or that cannot be solved by just reliving them, which is the common way of dealing with trauma, right? Relive the original trauma, then put it into words, make it uh, speakable, you know, and it will, and you will slowly heal. Sometimes this can be true, but there is always that which remains unspeakable. Even if you try to put it into words, it remains elusive, mm -hmm. which is why it's so meaningful that his second movie is called The Look of Silence, where um, a guy um, who is a, an optometrician, so he's about, you know, he, he's giving people glasses. He goes from village to village, um, measuring their eyesight, and then uses this as a kind of way to discuss this period, the 60s, which is a very traumatizing period and people don't want to talk about it. And then, so in a way he's doing the same thing. He's trying to make things speakable that were unspeakable before, but then the movie is called The Look of Silence for a reason. And it really focuses the cinematography on things that are not spoken, but they are still communicated. So it zooms, the, the camera zooms in a lot on people's faces. 
mm. when they are asked a question and they answer it partly. And you see in their eyes, there was something else that they wanted to say, but they choose not to. Or they focus on a face when it's clear that someone is struggling to put it into words. They're trying to say, it, but it's not working out for whatever reason. And that's what this whole movie is about. So it is a study of the things that cannot be said, even if you try, but that can still be communicated. Hence the look of silence. So it's a beautiful film, but it is pretty, like we watched it with PhD students uh, um, a few years ago when I was doing my PhD and one person fainted, for example, even though you don't see anything gruesome, the topic as such is, it's just really, really horrible. So I wouldn't go into this if you're, if you don't want to hear um, such horrors from the um, recent past. Mm. Just as a trigger warning, but it is a great film. Yeah. Would you uh, send me the link so that I put it also in the description and people could? The look yeah. of silence. Yeah. And that's, I think, the main uh, re recommendation. There's also some other, there's some other interesting um novels about silence of course but i think we would open an entire new like pandora's box if we would start talking about it but if, i can quickly recommend a, an old novel from the turn of the century from 1900 i think the colonial novel officially but it was ahead of its time it was basically criticizing the colonial empire before it before the independence war started by louis Couperes, dutch writer but it has been translated into english as well the dutch name is the stille kracht which means the silent force you know, but uh, it's often translated into English as the hidden force, unfortunately, you know, and mm. but fair enough, because silence and, and things that are hidden, but to me, it actually misses it, you know, it loses something when it is translated like that, but that is how it is usually translated, the hidden force, but literally, it would mean the silent force, and it is about um, a Dutch colonize, uh, colonizer with a lot of power somewhere in Western Indonesia, with his family, co colonial family, and then they feel that there is a silent force around them that is trying to destroy them, that is trying to push them out or that's trying to turn them crazy uh, or trying to break them apart as a family also. And it is really well done. It's almost kind of like a Gothic novel because it's constantly unclear whether this is supernatural, there's actually ghosts or something or spirits, or whether this is a simple political allegory. Clearly the, the local population silently, you know, uh, hates the colonizers, both things are equally equally likely, or it is partly psychological to the extent that it is focalized from the perspective of the colonizer, who may be dealing with doubt, you know, and himself might think this is not my place. And he also does that. So he doesn't feel that he has the authority to be, he kind of doubts colonization from the inside. And uh, therefore he might also be projecting his own doubts and insecurities on the world around him. It is in a way really cool in an environmentalist sense as well, because this silent force is partly a people's force that he feels this colonizer in the way in which, you know, colonial subjects look at each other, then, you know, smile at him friendly, but then they look at each other and they communicate something that he doesn't understand. And it usually is something aggressive or against him, but partly it is also whispered in the trees. And, you know, like uh, there is, he's always very afraid of the dark because this is when the silent force comes out. He's just afraid of the place itself that he's occupying as if he doesn't belong there. So it's a really cool, like a ghost story, but more complex and a really good proto-independence, like proto-post-colonial uh, novel. It's, 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 very, it's very good actually for its time. That's the silent force. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time, for this uh, really great conversation. Really, I really enjoyed talking about <laughs> silence. 
Yeah. No, but thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was really, really great. And for your time. And, uh, of course. Um, no, it's amazing. Thank you for the invitation. I also really enjoyed it. <laughs>